This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two Years Before the Mast by Richard Henry Dana, Jr. Chapter 15 Flogging For several days the captain seemed very much out of humor. Nothing went right or fast enough for him. He quarreled with the cook, and threatened to flog him for throwing wood on deck, and had a dispute with the mate about reaving a Spanish burton, the mate saying that he was right, and had been taught how to do it by a man who was a sailor. This the captain took in dudgeon, and they were at sword's points at once, but his displeasure was chiefly turned against a large, heavy-molded fellow from the Middle States, who was called Sam. This man hesitated in his speech, was rather slow in his motions, and was only a tolerably good sailor, but usually seemed to do his best. Yet the captain took a dislike to him, thought he was surly and lazy, and, if you once give a dog a bad name, as the sailor phrase is, he may as well jump overboard. The captain found fault with everything this man did, and hazed him for dropping a marlin spike from the main yard, where he was at work. This, of course, was an accident, but it was set down against him. The captain was on board all Friday, and everything went on hard and disagreeably. The more you drive a man, the less he will do, was as true with us as with any other people. We worked late Friday night, and were turned to early Saturday morning. About ten o'clock, the captain ordered our new officer, Russell, who by this time had become thoroughly disliked by all the crew, to get the gig ready to take him ashore. John the Swede was sitting in the boat alongside, and Mr. Russell and I were standing by the main hatchway, waiting for the captain, who was down in the hold where the crew were at work, when we heard his voice raised in violent dispute with somebody. Whether it was with the mate or one of the crew, I could not tell. And then came blows and scuffling. I ran to the side and beckoned to John, who came aboard, and we leaned down the hatchway, and though we could see no one, yet we knew the captain had the advantage, for his voice was loud and clear. You see your condition? You see your condition? Will you ever give me any more of your jaw? No answer. And then came wrestling and heaving, as though the man was trying to turn him. You may as well keep still, for I have got you, said the captain. Then came the question. Will you ever give me any more of your jaw? I never gave you any, sir, said Sam, for it was his voice that we heard, though low and half choked. That's not what I ask you. Will you ever be impudent to me again? I never have been, sir, said Sam. Answer my question, or I'll make a spread eagle of you. I'll flog you, by God. I'm no negro slave, said Sam. Then I'll make you one, said the captain. And he came to the hatchway and sprang on deck, threw off his coat, and rolling up his sleeves, called out to the mate. Seize that man up, Mr. Amersine. Seize him up. Make a spread eagle of him. I'll teach you all who's master aboard. The crew and officers followed the captain up the hatchway, but it was not until after repeated orders that the mate laid hold of Sam, who made no resistance, and carried him to the gangway. "'What are you going to flog that man for, sir?' said John, the Swede, to the captain. 
Upon hearing this, the captain turned upon John, but knowing him to be quick and resolute, he ordered the steward to bring the irons, and, calling upon Russell to help him, went up to John. "'Let me alone,' said John. "'I'm willing to be put in irons. You need not use any force.' And putting out his hands, the captain slipped the irons on, and sent him aft to the quarter-deck. Sam by this time was seized up, as it is called, that is, placed against the shrouds with his wrists made fast to them, his jacket off and his back exposed. The captain stood on the break of the deck, a few feet from him, and a little raised, so as to have a good swing at him, and held in his hand the end of a thick, strong rope. The officers stood round, and the crew grouped together in the waist. All these preparations made me feel sick and almost faint. Angry and excited as I was, a man, a human being, made in God's likeness, fastened up and flogged like a beast, a man, too, whom I had lived with, eaten with, and stood watch with for months, and knew so well. If a thought of resistance crossed the minds of any of the men, what was to be done? Their time for it had gone by, and there were left only two men besides Stimson and myself, and a small boy of ten or twelve years of age, and Stimson and I would not have joined the men in a mutiny, as they knew. And then, on the other side, there were, besides the captain, three officers, steward, agent, and clerk, and the cabin supplied with weapons. But besides the numbers, what is there for sailors to do? If they resist, it is mutiny, and if they succeed and take a vessel, it is piracy. If they ever yield again, their punishment must come, and if they do not yield, what are they to be for the rest of their lives? If a sailor resists his commander, he resists the law, and piracy or submission is his only alternative. Bad as it was, they saw it must be borne. It is what a sailor ships for. Swinging the rope over his head and bending his body so as to give it full force, the captain brought it down upon the poor fellow's back. Once, twice, six times. Will you ever give me any more of your jaw? The man writhed with pain, but said not a word. Three times more. This was too much, and he muttered something which I could not hear. This brought as many more as the man could stand, when the captain ordered him to be cut down. Now for you, said the captain, making up to John, and taking his irons off. As soon as John was loose, he ran forward to the forecastle. Bring that man aft, shouted the captain. The second mate, who had been in the forecastle with these men the early part of the voyage, stood still in the waist, and the mate walked slowly forward. But our third officer, anxious to show his zeal, sprang forward over the windlass and laid hold of John. But John soon threw him from him. The captain stood on the quarter-deck, bareheaded, eyes flashing with rage, and his face as red as blood, swinging the rope and calling out to his officers, Drag him aft! Lay hold of him! I'll sweeten him! etc., etc., the mate now went forward, and told John quietly to go aft. And he, seeing resistance was vain, threw the blackguard third mate from him, 
and said he would go aft of himself, that they should not drag him, and went up to the gangway and held out his hands. But as soon as the captain began to make him fast, the indignity was too much, and he struggled, but the mate and Russell holding him, he was soon seized up. When he was made fast, he turned to the captain, who stood rolling up his sleeves, getting ready for the blow, and asked him what he was to be flogged for. "'Have I ever refused my duty, sir? Have you ever known me to hang back or to be insolent, or not to know my work?' "'No,' said the captain. "'It is not that that I flog you for. I flog you for interference, for asking questions!' "'Can't a man ask questions here without being flogged?' "'No,' shouted the captain. "'Nobody shall open his mouth aboard this vessel but myself!' And he began laying the blows upon his back, swinging half round between each blow to give it full effect. As he went on, his passion increased, and he danced about the deck, calling out as he swung the rope, "'If you want to know what I flog you for, I'll tell you! It's because I like to do it! Because I like to do it! It suits me!' That's what I do it for! The man writhed under the pain until he could endure it no longer, when he called out, with an exclamation more common among foreigners than with us, Oh, Jesus Christ! Oh, Jesus Christ! Don't call on Jesus Christ! shouted the captain. He can't help you! Call on Frank Thompson! He's the man! He can help you! Jesus Christ can't help you now! At these words, which I shall never forget, my blood ran cold. I could look on no longer. Disgusted, sick, I turned away, and leaned over the rail, and looked down into the water. A few rapid thoughts, I don't know what, our situation, a resolution to see the captain punished when we got home, crossed my mind but the falling of the blows and the cries of the man called me back once more. At length they ceased, and turning round, I found that the mate, at a signal from the captain, had cast him loose. Almost doubled up with pain, the man walked slowly forward and went down into the forecastle. Everyone else stood still at his post, while the captain, swelling with rage, and with the importance of his achievement, walked the quarter-deck, and at each turn he came forward, calling out to us, You see your condition? You see where I've got you all? And you know what to expect. You've been mistaken in me. You didn't know what I was. Now you know what I am. I'll make you toe the mark, every soul of you, or I'll flog you all for an aft from the boy up. You've got a driver over you! Yes, a slave driver! A nigger driver! I'll see who'll tell me he isn't a nigger slave! With this and the like manner, equally calculated to quiet us, and to allay any apprehensions of future trouble, he entertained us for about ten minutes when he went below. Soon after, John came aft, with his bare back covered with stripes and wheels in every direction, and dreadfully swollen and asked the steward to ask the captain to let him have some salve, or balsam to put upon it. No, said the captain, who heard him from below. 
Tell him to put his shirt on. That's the best thing for him. And put me ashore in the boat. Nobody is going to lay up on board this vessel. He then called to Mr. Russell to take those two men and two others in the boat and pull him ashore. I went for one. The two men could hardly bend their backs, and the captain called to them to give way. But finding they did their best, he let them alone. The agent was in the stern sheets, but during the whole pull, a league or more, not a word was spoken. We landed. The captain, agent, and officer went up to the house, and left us with a boat. I and the man with me stayed near the boat, while John and Sam walked slowly away and sat down on the rocks. They talked some time together, but at length separated, each sitting alone. I had some fears of John. He was a foreigner and violently tempered, and under suffering, and he had his knife with him, and the captain was to come down alone to the boat. But nothing happened, and we went quietly on board. The captain was probably armed, and if either of them had lifted a hand against him, they would have had nothing before them but flight and starvation in the woods of California, or capture by the soldiers and Indians whom the offer of twenty dollars would have set upon them. After the day's work was done, we went down into the forecastle and ate our plain supper, but not a word was spoken. It was Saturday night, but there was no song, no sweethearts and wives. A gloom was over everything. The two men lay in their berths, groaning with pain, and we all turned in, but for myself not to sleep. A sound coming now and then from the berths of the two men showed that they were awake, as awake they must have been, for they could hardly lie in one posture long. The dim, swinging lamp shed its light over the dark hole in which we lived, and many and various reflections and purposes coursed through my mind. I had no real apprehension that the captain would lay a hand on me, but I thought of our situation, living under a tyranny, with an ungoverned, swaggering fellow administering it, of the character of the country we were in, the length of the voyage, the uncertainty attending our return to America. And then, if we should return, the prospect of obtaining justice and satisfaction for these poor men. And I vowed that, if God should ever give me the means, I would do something to redress the grievances and relieve the sufferings of that class of beings with whom my lot had so long been cast. The next day was Sunday, we worked, as usual, washing decks, etc., until breakfast time. After breakfast, we pulled the captain ashore, and, finding some hides there which had been brought down the night before, he ordered me to stay ashore and watch them, saying that the boat would come again before night. They left me, and I spent a quiet day on the hill, eating dinner with three men at the little house. Unfortunately, they had no books and after talking with them and walking about, I began to grow tired of doing nothing. The little brig, the home of so much hardship and suffering, lay in the offing, almost as far as one could see, and the only other thing which broke the surface of the great bay was a small, 
dreary-looking island, steep and conical, of a clayey soil, and without the sign of vegetable life upon it, yet which had a peculiar and melancholy interest, for on the top of it were buried the remains of an Englishman, the commander of a small merchant brig, who died while lying in this port. It was always a solemn and affecting spot to me. There it stood desolate, and in the midst of desolation, and there were the remains of one who died, and was buried alone and friendless. Had it been a common burying-place, it would have been nothing. The single body corresponded well with the solitary character of everything around. It was the only spot in California that impressed me with anything like poetic interest. Then, too, the man died far from home, without a friend near him. By poison it was suspected, and no one to inquire into it, and without funeral rites. The mate, as I was told, glad to have him out of the way, hurrying him up the hill and into the ground, without a word or a prayer. I looked anxiously for a boat during the latter part of the afternoon, but none came until towards sundown, when I saw a speck on the water, and as it drew near, I found it was the gig with the captain. The hides, then, were not to go off. The captain came up the hill with a man, bringing my monkey jacket and a blanket. He looked pretty black, but inquired whether I had enough to eat, told me to make a house out of the hides and keep myself warm, as I should have to sleep there among them, and to keep good watch over them. I got a moment to speak to the man who brought my jacket. How do things go aboard? said I. Bad enough, said he. Hard work and not a kind word spoken. What? said I. Have you been at work all day? Yes. No more Sunday for us. Everything has been moved in the hold from stem to stern, and from the waterways to the kilson. I went up to the house to supper. We had frijoles, the perpetual food of the Californians, but which, when well cooked, are the best bean in the world. Coffee made of burnt wheat and hard bread. After our meal, the three men sat down by the light of a tallow candle, with a pack of greasy Spanish cards, to the favorite game of Treinta y Uno, a sort of Spanish everlasting. I left them and went out to take up my bivouac among the hides. It was now dark. The vessel was hidden from sight, and except the three men in the house, there was not a living soul within a league. The coyotes, a wild animal of a nature and appearance between that of the fox and the wolf, set up their sharp, quick bark, and two owls, at the end of the two distant points running out into the bay, on different sides of the hill where I lay, kept up their alternate dismal notes. I had heard the sound before at night, but did not know what it was, until one of the men, who came down to look at my quarters, told me it was the owl. Mellowed by the distance and heard alone at night, it was a most melancholy and boding sound. Through nearly all the night they kept it up, answering one another slowly at regular intervals. This was relieved by the noisy coyotes, some of which came quite near to my quarters, and were not very pleasant neighbors. The next morning before sunrise, the longboat came ashore, and the hides were taken off. We lay at San Pedro about a week, engaged in taking off hides and in other labors, 
which had now become our regular duties. I spent one more day on the hill, watching a quantity of hides and goods, and this time succeeded in finding a part of a volume of Scott's Pirate in a corner of the house. But it failed me at a most interesting moment, and I betook myself to my acquaintances on shore, and from them learned a good deal about the customs of the country, the harbors, etc. This, they told me, was a worse harbor than Santa Barbara for southeasters, the bearing of the headland being a point and a half more to windward, and it being so shallow that the sea broke often as far out as where we lay at anchor. The gale for which we slipped at Santa Barbara had been so bad a one here that the whole bay, for a league out, was filled with the foam of the breakers, and seas actually broke over the dead man's island. The Lagoda was lying there, and slipped at the first alarm, and in such haste that she was obliged to leave her launch behind her at anchor. The little boat rowed it out for several hours, pitching at her anchor, and standing with her stern up almost perpendicularly. The men told me that they watched her till towards night, when she snapped her cable and drove up over the breakers high and dry upon the beach. On board the Pilgrim everything went on regularly, each one trying to get along as smoothly as possible, but the comfort of the voyage was evidently at an end. That is a long lane which has no turning. Every dog must have his day, and mine will come by and by. And the like proverbs were occasionally quoted, but no one spoke of any probable end to the voyage, or of Boston, or anything of the kind. Or, if he did, it was only to draw the perpetual surly reply from his shipmate. Boston, is it? You may thank your stars if you ever see that place. You had better have your back sheathed and your head coppered, and your feet shod, and make out your log for California for life. Or else something of this kind. Before you get to Boston, the hides will wear all the hair off your head, and you'll take up all your wages and clothes, and won't have enough to buy a wig with. The flogging was seldom, if ever, alluded to by us in the forecastle. If any one was inclined to talk about it, the others, with a delicacy which I hardly expected to find among them, always stopped him, or turned the subject. But the behavior of the two men who were flogged towards one another showed a consideration which would have been worthy of admiration in the highest walks of life. Sam knew John had suffered solely on his account, and in all his complaints he said that, if he alone had been flogged, it would have been nothing, but he never could see him without thinking that he had been the means of bringing this disgrace upon him. And John never, by word or deed, let anything escape him to remind the other that it was by interfering to save a shipmate that he had suffered. Neither made it a secret that they thought the Dutchman Bill and Foster might have helped them, but they did not expect it of Stimson or me. While we showed our sympathy for their suffering, and our indignation at the captain's violence, we did not feel sure that there was only one side to the beginning of the difficulty, and we kept clear of any engagement with them, except our promise to help them when they got home. Note. Owing to the change of vessels that afterwards took place, Captain Thompson arrived in Boston nearly a year before the Pilgrim, 
and was off on another voyage beyond the reach of these men. Soon after the publication of the first edition of this book in 1841, I received a letter from Stimson, dated at Detroit, Michigan, where he had re-entered mercantile life, from which I make this extract. As to your account of the flogging scene, I think you have given a fair history of it, and, if anything, been too lenient toward Captain Thompson for his brutal, cowardly treatment of those men. As I was in the hold at the time the affray commenced, I will give you a short history of it as near as I can recollect. We were breaking out goods in the forehold, and in order to get at them, we had to shift our hides from forward to aft. After having removed part of them, we came to the boxes and attempted to get them out without moving any more of the hides. While doing so, Sam accidentally hurt his hand, and, as usual, began swearing about it, and was not sparing of his oaths, although I think he was not aware that Captain Thompson was so near him at the time. Captain Thompson asked him, in no moderate way, what was the matter with him. Sam, on account of the impediment in his speech, could not answer immediately, although he endeavored to, but as soon as possible answered in a manner that almost any one would, under the like circumstances, yet I believe not with the intention of giving a short answer. But being provoked, and suffering pain from the injured hand, he perhaps answered rather short or sullenly. Thus commenced the scene you have so vividly described, and which seems to me exactly the history of the whole affair without any exaggeration. End note. Having got all our spare room filled with hides, we hove up our anchor and made sail for San Diego. In no operation can the disposition of a crew be better discovered than in getting under way. Where things are done with a will, everyone is like a cat aloft. Sails are loosed in an instant. Each one lays out his strength on his handspike and the windlass goes briskly round with the cry of, Yo, heave ho! Heave and paw! Heave hearty ho! And the chorus of cheerily men cats the anchor. But with us, at this time, it was all dragging work. No one went aloft beyond his ordinary gait, and the chain came slowly in over the windlass. The mate, between the night heads, exhausted all official rhetoric and calls of, Heave with a will! Heave hardy, men! Heave hardy! Heave and raise the dead! Heave and away! Etc., etc. But it would not do. Nobody broke his back or his handspike by his efforts. And when the cat tackle fall was strung again, and all hands, cook, steward, and all, laid hold to cat the anchor, instead of the lively song of cheerly men, in which all hands joined in the chorus, we pulled a long, heavy, silent pull. And, as sailors say, a song is as good as ten men. The anchor came to the cathead pretty slowly. Give us cheerily, said the mate. But there was no cheerily for us, and we did without it. The captain walked the quarter-deck and said not a word. He must have seen the change, but there was nothing which he could notice officially. We sailed leisurely down the coast before a light, fair wind, keeping the land well aboard, 
and saw two other missions, looking like blocks of white plaster shining in the distance, one of which, situated on the top of a high hill, was San Juan Capistrano, under which vessels sometimes came to anchor in the summer season and take off hides. At sunset on the second day, we had a large and well-wooded headland directly before us, behind which lay the little harbor of San Diego. We were becalmed off this point all night, but the next morning, which was Saturday the 14th of March, having a good breeze, we stood round the point, and hauling our wind brought the little harbor, which is rather the outlet of a small river, right before us. Everyone was desirous to get a view of the new place, a chain of high hills beginning at the point, which was on our larboard hand coming in, protected the harbor on the north and west, and ran off into the interior as far as the eye could reach. On the other sides the land was low and green, but without trees. The entrance is so narrow as to admit but one vessel at a time, the current swift, and the channel runs so near to a low stony point that the ship's sides appeared almost to touch it. There was no town in sight, but on the smooth sand beach abreast, within a cable's length of which three vessels lay moored, were four large houses, built of rough boards, and looking like the great barns in which ice is stored, on the borders of the large ponds near Boston, with piles of hides standing round them, and men in red shirts and large straw hats, walking in and out of the doors. These were the hide-houses. Of the vessels, one, a short, clumsy, little hermaphrodite brig, we recognized as our old acquaintance, the Laureate. Another, with sharp bows and raking masts, newly painted and tarred, and glittering in the morning sun, with the blood-red banner and cross of St. George at her peak, was the handsome Ayacucho. The third was a large ship, with top-gallant masts housed and sails unbent, and looking as rusty and worn as two years hydroging could make her. This was the Lagoda. As we drew near, carried rapidly along by the current, we overhauled our chain and clued up the topsails. Let go the anchor, said the captain, but either there was not chain enough forward of the windlass, or the anchor went down foul, or we had too much headway on, for it did not bring us up. Pay out chain, shouted the captain, and we gave it to her, but it would not do. Before the other anchor could be let go, we drifted down, broadside on, and went smash into the Lagoda. Her crew were at breakfast in the forecastle, and her cook, seeing us coming, rushed out of his galley and called up the officers and men. Fortunately, no great harm was done. Her jib-boom passed between our fore and mainmast, carrying away some of our rigging and breaking down the rail. She lost her martin yell. This brought us up, and as they paid out chain, we swung clear of them and let go the other anchor, but this had as bad luck as the first, for, before anyone perceived it, we were drifting down upon the Laureate. The captain now gave out his orders rapidly and fiercely, sheeting home the topsails and backing and filling the sails, in hope of starting or clearing the anchors. But it was all in vain, 
and he sat down on the rail, taking it very leisurely, and calling out to Captain Nye that he was coming to pay him a visit. We drifted fairly into the Laureate, her larboard bow into our starboard quarter, carrying away part of our starboard quarter railing, and breaking off her larboard bumpkin and one or two stanchions above the deck. We saw our handsome sailor, Jackson, on the forecastle, with the Sandwich Islanders, working away to get us clear. After paying out chain, we swung clear, but our anchors were, no doubt, a foul of hers. We manned the windlass, and hove, and hove away, but to no purpose. Sometimes we got a little upon the cable, but a good surge would take it all back again. We now began to drift down toward the Ayacucho, when her boat put off and brought her commander, Captain Wilson, on board. He was a short, active, well-built man, about fifty years of age, and being some twenty years older than our captain, and a thorough seaman, he did not hesitate to give his advice, and from giving advice he gradually came to taking the command, ordering us when to heave and when to pawl, and backing and filling the topsails, setting and taking in jib and trysail whenever he thought best. Our captain gave a few orders, but as Wilson gently countermanded them, saying in an easy, fatherly kind of way, Oh no, Captain Thompson, you don't want the jib on her. Or, It isn't time yet to heave. He soon gave it up. We had no objections to this state of things, for Wilson was a kind man, and had an encouraging and pleasant way of speaking to us, which made everything go easily. After two or three hours of constant labor at the windlass, heaving and yo-ho-hoing with all our might, we brought up the anchor with the Laureate's small bower fast to it. Having cleared this and let it go, and cleared our hawse, we got our other anchor, which had dragged half over the harbor. Now, said Wilson, I'll find you a good berth. And settling both the topsails, he carried us down and brought us to anchor in handsome style, directly abreast of the hide house which we were to use. Having done this, he took his leave, while we furled the cells and got our breakfast, which was welcome to us, for we had worked hard and eaten nothing since yesterday afternoon, and it was nearly twelve o'clock. After breakfast, and until night, we were employed in getting out the boats and mooring ship. After supper, two of us took the captain on board the Lagoda. As he came alongside, he gave his name, and the mate in the gangway called out to Captain Bradshaw, down the companionway, Captain Thompson has come aboard, sir. Has he brought his brig with him? asked the rough old fellow in a tone which made itself heard fore and aft. This mortified our captain not a little, and it became a standing joke among us, and indeed over the coast for the rest of the voyage. The captain went down into the cabin, and we walked forward and put our heads down the forecastle, where we found the men at supper. "'Come down, shipmates! Come down!' said they, as soon as they saw us. "'Shipmate' is the term by which sailors address one another when not acquainted. And we went down, and found a large, high forecastle, well lighted, and a crew of twelve or fourteen men eating out of their kids and pans, and drinking their tea, and talking and laughing, all as independent and easy as so many wood-sawyer's clerks. This looked like comfort and enjoyment, 
compared with the dark little forecastle and scanty, discontented crew of the brig. It was Saturday night. They had got through their work for the week, and being snugly moored, had nothing to do until Monday again. After two years' hard service, they had seen the worst, and all of California, had got their cargo nearly stowed, and expected to sell in a week or two for Boston. We spent an hour or more with them, talking over California matters, until the word was passed, Pilgrims away! And we went back to our brig. The Lagodas were a hardy, intelligent set, a little roughened, and their clothes patched and old from California wear, all able seamen, and between the ages of twenty and thirty-five or forty. They inquired about our vessel, the usage on board, etc., and were not a little surprised at the story of the flogging. They said there were often difficulties in the vessels on the coast, and sometimes knock-downs and fightings, but they had never heard before of a regular seizing up and flogging. Spread eagles were a new kind of bird in California. Sunday, they said, was always given in San Diego, both at the hide-houses and on board the vessels, a large number usually going up to the town on Liberty. We learned a good deal from them about the curing and stowing of hides, etc., and they were desirous to have the latest news, seven months old, from Boston. One of their first inquiries was for Father Taylor, the seaman's preacher in Boston, then followed the usual strain of conversation, inquiries, and stories, and jokes, which one must always hear in a ship's forecastle, but which are, perhaps, after all, no worse, though more gross and coarse, than those one may chance to hear from some well-dressed gentlemen around their tables. End of chapter 15